People think some huge trauma needs to happen before you can use therapy, but really you can use therapy to get the tools before something bad ever happens. Visit betterhelp.com hacks and learn some new things to help navigate your life. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. First of all, let me just say, it's an eventful week. First of all, we have to make sure, just chronologically, we have to make sure we keep government open, and we will. Second of all, we have to honor the vision of President Biden, and we thank him for his leadership and his courage putting forth such a bold package. (laughs) eventful week in the understatement Guinness Book of World Records. I think they made note of that. We'll see how it turns out. Hi, Hackaroos. It's Dr. Murphy here with the great one, the great one. Robert Z. Gibbs is joining us today for the podcast. Hey, Robert. Murphy, you you appear to have given me a new middle name, Z. What does Z stand for in, (laughs) in this rumination? Well, a few weeks ago, the great Catskill comic Mal Z. Lawrence died, and he was famous. His nickname was Mal Z, but he changed it to Mal Z, like a middle name Lawrence. And somebody asked Mal once, what does it stand for? And he says that nothing made it up, but my career took off and I got more marquee space with the Z. So in in honor of uh, the, the great comic Mal Z. Lawrence today, you're Robert Z. Gibbs. But more importantly, joining us, the Ayatollah of political polas, the man himself. Who we got, Gibbsy? Well, we've got somebody with a Z actually in his name. It's not his middle name, but it is one <laughs> John Anzalone, better known uh, as uh, a passionate college football fan, but we won't get into that. John is, uh, I've known John for a really long time. We won't go back to that either, those uh, interesting campaigns. But John is uh, joining us. John's claim to fame right now is he's Joe Biden's pollster. So, um, We look forward to kind of diving in here with you a little bit, John, and kind of pulling all this apart. Let's start maybe with what Nancy Pelosi said and Mike and I have both chuckled at, which is uh, the understatement that this is an eventful week. Uh, How big a week is this for the Biden presidency? Well, first, thanks for having me uh, on the show. And to Murphy, I I think Z should be Robert Zeitgeist Gibbs, because that's really (laughs) what he does, right? I mean, he... He explains to us the moment in time or his spin on it. Right. Uh, So that's where I'm I'm going to I'm going to do that. Um, And then maybe later on, we can talk about, you know, the Auburn quarterback uh, controversy. I'm not sure how to start on on Saturday. I don't know if we have enough time. You know what I thought the most important? There are a couple of things about Nancy Pelosi. It's like every time people underestimate her, she rises to the occasion and you understand how not only powerful she is, but how masterful she is in negotiating big times. Um, you know, whether she's a minority leader or whether she is the Speaker of the House, and she's doing it again um, this week. I think she completely understands, you know, how important this point in time is. And I think that one, the, the other thing I I found really important in what she was saying was talking about how Biden has also understood this time and put this this package together um, that is so important and meaningful for you know working families and seniors and small businesses. And, and I'm sure we're gonna talk about that. But yeah, it's an important week. Um, 
you know, whether you're a Republican or Democratic president, you want wins, you want to rack up wins. This is um, a big one. Um, and it certainly will hopefully uh, 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 turn the momentum around, which has been a, a tough uh, month or five weeks. But at the at the you know where the rubber hits the road, no pun intended, because this is an infrastructure bill. This is like really important for America, right? <clears throat> I mean, this was a bipartisan bill that remind me, seventeen or nineteen Republicans in the Senate. Uh, hopefully, we'll get uh, um, uh, a handful uh, in the House. Um, and is really important for a country who needs to improve its infrastructure system to continue having a modern economy. One of my old favorite tropes from the original Star Trek was whenever they bumped into a scene, sometimes they'd have Spock staring at a three-dimensional chessboard. You know, they sent some poor prop guy out to saw a chessboard into three pieces and glue it to a cheese rack. And, you know, in the future, we have three-dimensional chess. Well, th this is kind of akin to that because there are sort of three games of chicken going on simultaneously. There was game of chicken one, the lowest stakes one, in my view, which kind of played out yesterday in the Senate where the Dems, you know, took the debt ceiling and the need to fund the government at least short term to get to a debt ceiling, put it together, forced a forking vote on it. McConnell shot it down. Today, they're going to make a deal for the short term funding so the government won't shut down. Then we've got the debt ceiling thing we can talk about in the middle, which is a much bigger game of chicken with pretty high stakes. Um, but then we've got this Democratic game of chicken that I think the president is particularly interested in because he could use a win right now. And, and I agree, the infrastructure bill, which is that rarest of animals, you know, the proverbial pink elephant, where Democrats and Republicans came together to spend some money in a way that helps the economy, creates jobs. It is a good bill. It reassured our allies that we can actually function. It's sitting there, but it's being held hostage by uh, some of the progressive Democrats, which, of course, has given the Republicans the opportunity to cackle and and uh, and watch from the sidelines, hoping for a, a crack up. So I'm sure the president, who knows his way around legislative politics from his years in the Senate, is involved in this. But I, I'm curious about how this happened. You know, the current state of play is off what we opened with. Nancy says... Speaker Pelosi, I'll, I'll, I'll be formal here because the stakes are high, says she's going to push an infrastructure vote on Thursday. That's good. The question is, how do we tamp down that uh, that progressive revolt, which is all linked to the $3.5 trillion spending bill that, you know, thanks to Manchin, isn't going to happen. There's got to be a new number. How do you Dems who know this world better than me, how do you think it gets unraveled? Because it would be bad for Biden if it doesn't happen. And he needs a win right now. We're talking polling later, but the president could use the win. But let me let me push back there. You say it's being held hostage by progressives. Well, I can just make a, a stronger argument that it's being held hostage by Republicans. I mean, you saw uh, the infrastructure bill. I mean, like, come up with, like, should it be difficult to come up with 20 votes from Republicans? Uh, on something it shouldn't. Um, this important. So the fact is, is that, you know, what is the the, the debt ceiling is being held hostage by uh, Republicans, you know, the, the budget itself and continuing re resolutions. And so everything in the Senate right now, you know, what is being held hostage by the Republicans, which is all of these nominees that have been um, put down, uh, um, sent to Senate uh, by President Biden. And so, you know, if we're gonna talk about hostage holders, or, 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 you know, it, it's really the Republicans. We play around and play by the rules because, you know, we have to do that. But the fact is, is that it, it does take two to tango here. And all of the impediments, all of the hurdles right now on getting things done 
um, is with Republicans and we're trying to do a workaround. And so everyone well, seems to concentrate <laughs> on the cinemas and the mansions of the world and the you know moderates or the progressives in the, in the House when the fact is, is that, hey, man, it only takes a handful of votes or sometimes one on the Republican side. And, you know, that's that's a problem for you guys because you're on the wrong side of all of these issues in terms of their popularity, but more importantly, how impactful they are for real families, for seniors and small businesses. And well, this yeah, but, you know, we, we don't want to we try to avoid because you and I are going to disagree on the, the ideology of it. I think the spending bill is a travesty. We don't even know what the size is. And I agree the Republicans ought to in the House ought to be behind the infrastructure bill. I, th I think it, they ought to vote for it. I think there are about a dozen who really, really want to. But you don't think that you don't think Biff is a tragic travesty and you don't think Clearly, the debt ceiling is a travesty because how many times it was passed during the Trump years, how many times it was passed during the Bush years. So, I, look, I, I don't like debt ceiling politics because they're irresponsible. I, I, I've been pitching a thing uh, Maya McGinnis came up with, which I like a lot, which is there should be a debt ceiling vote anytime there's a big spending bill by the D's or a tax cut bill by the Republicans. Mm -hmm. You know, have a little intellectual honesty, which of course would shut yeah. down all the weaponizing. The Democrats have the votes in the Senate to pass the debt ceiling all by themselves. It's just a very sloppy way to do it. It's a banana Republic way to do it. And I think Mitch ought to back off. Uh, and it's hypocritical to say that the debt ceiling vote holding or not being for it and forcing the Democrats to do it alone and take the political blame is about future spending when it's actually about spending the Republicans support it. So right. yeah, I get I get all that. But back to the practical politics of today, even if you got 25 Repubs in the House, to vote for the infrastructure bill, which I think they would like to do. It's more of a culture of fear in that caucus. If you have 60 progressives vote no, it is a progressive problem. And so I think Nancy's job now is to try to land them and to get to our kind of hacky focus here. How does she do it? What are the moves this yeah. week to, to try to manage it? Well, I was gonna say, look, I mean, I think the first thing she did um, importantly, and, and these bills have been coupled for a long time, she goes into the caucus last night and she says, look, reconciliation essentially isn't where we need it to be at this moment, but we can't wait. And I think to John's point, to both of your points, the president, the president needs a win right now. Democrats need a win right now. The country needs a win right now. Right. So I think she said, you know, she's she's putting this up for a vote this week, even though she's not sort of where she'd like reconciliation to be. Now, I will say this, having watched her a lot. Um, particularly around the Affordable Care Act in 2009 and 2010. She's not going to bring this. She Announcing that she's bringing this to a vote is a big deal, not just because yeah. they're having the vote, but because she also said in that George Stephanopoulos interview, you don't vote if you don't have the votes. So she's moving chips in the middle of the table, not assuming she's going to win. She's going to she's she's assuming she can get people to sort of all band together because, and, and we'll get into this, I think at some point as well, there isn't a 2022 message where something doesn't get done, right? Again, I, it was, we've talked about like the democratic message can't be, give us two more years, we'll do better in the next two years. And I think she's gonna try to pull people together and say, everybody's got their short-term interest, let's vote this week on our long-term interest. And I will say this, I think it is, I think this is as big a, Big a job as Pelosi has stared down since healthcare in 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 2010, but boy, I would not bet against her this week. Yeah, I wouldn't bet against her as well. And I think that listen, I think that 
you know, the democratic messaging has never been more promising, you know, with the combination of the infrastructure bill and what is in the build back better part of reconciliation, you know, that helps working families and seniors and, and, and small businesses. This is a narrative that we want to be able to take in to the 2020 uh, to midterm elections. And, you know, how do you get there, Mike? Well, I think that there's a lot of persuading going on that, you know, this is really good for Democrats. And this is a strong Democratic message for frontline Democrats. And again, I think every time that people have um, underestimated Pelosi's whip ability to count votes and get the get the group together, you know, there's a lot out there who would love to see this fail, the, you know, right. But at the end of the day, um, you know, she's proven she knows what she's doing. You know, Biden understands the importance of it and what that whole uh, operation is doing. Uh, and, you know, we're not sitting here you know, on a podcast to be able to make predictions that, you know, we're going to win the vote, lose the vote. But the fact is, is that, you know, this is good for the Democratic uh, caucus and the Democratic messaging. Like Robert said, it's, you know, it's good for the administration. It's good for uh, America. And I think that, you know, she's going to pull it off. You know, it's interesting. There were a couple of tells. This is like Kremlinology, who has what carnation and what lapel at the May Day parade. And last night after they had the caucus wide meeting where Nancy kind of said, hey, I'm going to I said I'd do it together. It's not there in the Senate. I'm breaking it apart. Thursday, I expect you all to vote for the infrastructure thing for the president. You knuckleheads. We've already got a tough midterm. Things started to leak out, as they always do. And you're starting to see the number of two trillion or two point five trillion bubbling around. To me, that's the key for the next 72 hours. Can the progressives land on a number that's a trillion less? Will they take it or a trillion and a half less, which is a lot closer to what Manchin, who's been a little cryptic, and it's time for him to put his cards on the table because you can't get a deal without a number. So I think I think it'll come down to that trial balloon of two to two and a half. Kreskin just sent us a telegram. He's saying 2.2 uh, <laughs> is the official crystal ball prediction. But I would not be surprised if low two, uh, which is still more, Manchin's ended at like 1.8 um, because he keeps saying pay for it. And the tax thing gets hard after to just the politics of getting all those taxes, thank God. So anyway, we, we will see. But I look, I think it's an opportunity cost for the Dems. The Democrats want to take the stuff, John, as you say, particularly the stuff that tests well in, in, the, in the big spending bill and go out and fight the midterms on it. The Republicans want to go fight the tax and spend liberal side. So everybody's lined up and they're thankfully they're lined up in a good old school way. It's not like Trumpism. You know, we're going to have the good old fight right versus left on domestic spending. I, I applaud that. The, the question is if they have this short tactical train wreck in the house it just gets in the way of the dems being able to go out and try to fight their case as effectively as possible so you know i don't know i think this one's tight we'll see what happens right the other thing i would say and, and this shouldn't be lost on on the whole fight is the republicans are fighting it in the old battles right i mean they have defined democrats for the last two or three decades on taxes as the tax and spend liberal and big government yada 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 this may be the first time in modern history that they're at the wrong, on the wrong side of it, that Democrats not only have an incredibly strong message, if they pass whatever the amount is, I don't, you know, two, two, five, three, whatever trillion, there's going to be stuff in there for working families. And working families right now believe that there's 
a, you know, someone in there, who, someone in the presidency who's looking out for him. And there's a, you know, again, you put the combination of things that are in there, but there's going to be stuff in there that's going to lower costs for health insurance premiums, probably lower costs for prescription drugs, lower costs for elderly care, child care, et cetera. There's going to be some combination. And that is good for working families. Um, and it's not because it pulls well, it's because it's needed for them to have a opportunity to succeed in this economy. And it is what Biden says, it's rewarding work uh, and not wealth. But here may be the most important part of where I think we have an advantage that we have not had in a while, or at least neutrality, which is middle-class America is pissed off about those at the top and big corporations not paying their fair share. And for the first time, if we don't cower on the tax side of it, we have a really strong message because not only is it strong on the positive side because middle-class Americans believe that those at the top skirt their tax responsibility, big corporations, et cetera. But the fact is, it's also a great contrast message on taxes for the first time in maybe modern history because the Republicans are gonna vote all of these investments against it to protect the low tax rates for wealthy Americans and big corporations. That is a problem for them. And I'll tell you, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars right now in frontline Democratic districts. And you can see it all over the place. Go to Iowa and Axne and all that the ads that they're running against her. And it's not moving, quite frankly, the popularity of the Build Back Better plan or uh, the tax part of it or the individual parts of it. And so, again, the Democrats have a real opportunity to have strong messaging on the positive side of it about what they're going to do or what they have done, hopefully, but also the contrast on why Republicans have stopped it. And they're stopping all this shit because they're protecting the ultra wealthy and the big corporations. Well, and yeah, there's, a yeah, pan- but- there's a pandemic. There's a pandemic dynamic here. They were aggravated before the pandemic about those not paying their taxes. But then they saw during the pandemic, the ultra wealthy and big corporations do incredibly well. And so it is intensified you're doing the perfect frame. The Dems are going to go fight the election under. I, I think, I feel, I think you guys are in a corner in the house. Cause even if you execute that, it'll be hard to get a real test based on the geography of the house campaigns, but in the Senate, uh, some of those arguments might help you get control of the Senate, which is more in play. We're going to find out the Republicans will have a big set of arguments against it. I actually welcome the old school tax and spend versus the new framework you know, you're pitching here just because otherwise the Republicans are going to run against democracy. And I'd, I'd rather have them play the old hits than the new ones. But we're see, we're see. And but one thing the Democrats need it to have the clear running field to go go argue is great for middle class, big tax, you know, big corporations, evil tax them to play their song is to be able to pass something. So I think yeah. that's why the stakes are so high this week. Yeah. Murph, I'm going to, because that is old school. The big corporations is evil. This is administration. I, I think Biden did a, did a great job of this in the campaign in 2020 and does it now, is that he has said big corporations aren't evil, that we're talking about raising taxes to a level that still makes it one of the lowest tax rates on the corporate side in the, you know, the industrialized world. And he believes that corporations are partners. Does he want them to take a little bit more responsibility in terms of um, uh, their tax responsibility? Sure. Would he like to you know, get them to bring more uh, innovative manufacturing back 
um, uh, to America? Sure. And I think that he is doing their job. And I think people like Gina Raimondo um, is the right person in places like Commerce to send that signal. I mean, this. No, this she's great. I wish she were president. <laughs> but this administration is not a corporations or even. No, no. I, I, I'm so I get it. I get it. And he has tried to temper his rhetoric. Some Republicans even support <laughs> inching up the corporate tape to regularize of Europe. There, there's a window there to do some stuff. But look, it's a big tax package. There is some class warfare in it. But let, let's not fight out the midterm campaign as, as you know, surrogates here. Let's just get to we're hacks. Let's get to the <laughs> mechanics of it yeah. and the oh, making God. of the sausage rather than who's got a better paprika sauce. Uh, can I hear from Zeitgeist over here? I mean, he, yeah, what he do you say, Zeitgeist? Well, I, I love that Anza threw in our Commerce Secretary to sort of, you know, win the argument. Pander to me. Yeah, to, yeah exactly. to pander to great Gina Raimondo. I think a couple of points that are that are important. I mean, I do think it's going to be. I think we're all in agreement that that this is going to that, that this sort of tax fight is going to be an interesting one in 2020. As I've talked about for a while, it's not something that Democrats are normally used to being able to fight. Usually, when tax cuts get uh, uttered, we kind of get in this crouch position and then we start to try to explain. And as both of you know, when you're explaining, you're losing. So I think this will be interesting. That's my point, Robert. Is that we're yeah. in a new situation where we don't have to cower on the yeah. tax um, totally uh, message yeah. we actually have a, a on the tax side of it one that's on the positive side and the contrast side yeah. and that is kind of new for us so just a question for my neighbors and then we'll wrap up the tax argument here salt what's going to happen on salt in the final deal that's what all these california rich republicans and rich democratic donors want to know and the northeast guys right yeah, i mean the, you know right well yeah minnesota if any state with a high no minnesota is not taxes northeast god you california guy you're from michigan no man. no 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 i'm extending it beyond our beloved michigan we're both sons of the wolverine state to the midwest too basically if you've got a state with a fairly high income tax rate like california like new york like minnesota click below you know, you get worked up generally about what the Republicans did to cap uh, the amount of your local taxes you can deduct in your federal tax. Now, I didn't like that, not only because I pay taxes in the People's Republic of California, but because I don't like using the tax code as a political weapon. It, it's no surprise many of those states with high income tax are run by the Democrats. So now there's a thundering herd to bring it back, but Republicans are all gleefully the Republican hacks are thinking for the first time in their careers, they can run the ad saying 90% of the tax cut goes to millionaires. And that's one of the things the House moderates like Gothheimer from Jersey, one of those states, you know, are making trouble about. I'm just curious as not what's right or what's wrong, just political chicanery. Do we think that'll get fixed to calm down wealthy donors on both sides, particularly Democratics, since they have all the power in the House? Or do you think it'll be rolled over because it kind of gets it gives the Republicans something to attack on? First of all, I, I'm not in the sausage making business, right? Like you, you just like you almost put me to sleep. Like we're talking about salt, right? I mean, it's like you know, there's yeah, so but come on, things. this podcast, no, we're not I mean, Rogan, we're not right, talking about there's aliens. Like so we're, many things to be worked. We're political uh, sausage guys. It, it's like we might as well have a conversation about the billionaires tax or the international tax or like right. I mean, I mean seriously. Like the capital gains tax, it's like yeah. all that stuff is going to be worked out. Um, and luckily, we're not in there, you know, uh, um, watching it all worked out. And so the answer is, I really don't know. Um, but clearly, that has been something that the Northeasterners, more than anyone, right, uh, um, have made a lot of noise about. Yeah, and the Californians. All right, hold that thought. 
We're going to take a short break and now a word from our sponsors. Hello, friends. Listen to this one. It's interesting. Science tells us that the best way to achieve and maintain constant deep sleep is by lowering core body temperature. Literally, put it on ice. Temperature-controlled sleep restores testosterone levels, repairs muscle after a hard day's work, and improves cognitive function, so you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. I could use that. So Chili Sleep is an amazing product here, a new sponsor of Hacks on Tap, and what it does is make customizable climate-controlled sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well-being. Chili Sleep makes the Uller and Cube sleep systems, hydro-powered, temperature-controlled mattress Toppers. They go on top of your existing mattress and they control and provide your ideal sleep temperature. These luxury mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or cold. These sleep systems are designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. Imagine waking up and not feeling tired. Chilly sleep can help make that happen for you. For an extra layer of comfort, they also make the Chili Blanket. Oh, I like the sound of this. The only weighted blanket that can also be paired with a control unit for the ultimate sweat-free sleep. Believe me, I'm interested in this because I am an intermittent sleeper. So is my wife. We've tried a few things. Some work better than others. But this one, we are going to look into. So join me and head over to ChiliSleep.com hacks to learn more and save, get this, 20% off the purchase of any new sleep system. This offer is available exclusively for you, our learned Hacks on Tap listeners, and only for a limited time. That's Chili, C-H-I-L-I, sleep.com slash hacks to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every single day. What I think is interesting, Murphy, and I think this was probably a, 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 one of the things that's propelling Pelosi this week is this exact argument right here. She doesn't want to have this week, right? She wants right, to put right, that I off to the that. side, which, again, it's a big bet. I think it's going to be an interesting thing to play out, you know, debt limit and all that kind of stuff. L- l- let's get into a little bit of the broader polling question since we've got you, Anzo. You know, one of the things, obviously, we've talked a lot here about 2022. There's a couple of big elections still to be had in 2021. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we all understand is the, the president's political health and the political environment writ large is going to determine a lot of or have a, a big push on kind of what how this how, how things end up this November, maybe in Virginia. But certainly as we get into the more. The, the, the bigger part of the election season. How, how do you see the next few months, you know, kind of broadly from the perspective uh, of of Biden? And, and as you said, it's been a tough few weeks. How do you continue to kind of navigate that moving forward? Well, I mean, listen, there's been a, a lot of confluence of crises in this in this um, administration meaning American crises, right? Like he walked into all these crises things stabilized and now there's 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 new crises right um and you know there's probably always going to be crises um you know the delta variant without a doubt um is one not caused by this administration matter of fact they were trying to mitigate for it it for it to not happen um it may again we just got done talking about it 
at the end of the day, you know, Americans look at whatever, whoever's the president, whether it's a Republican or the Democrat, what have you done for me lately? Right. I mean, there's probably not a lot of people saying, oh, you know, the American Recovery Act, rah, rah, right. They're on to the next thing. And so that's what I think makes the bipartisan infrastructure package and the Build Back Better plan for American families and seniors and small businesses so important because as you said we want to go into the 2022 election saying this is what we have done for you to lower costs and create jobs etc cetera, etc cetera. not this is what we want to do for you yeah here's the question that we all don't know is like we all want to get back to normal in terms of our social engagement and the social engagement creates an economic engagement right people are afraid more afraid to go to restaurants but they are now today you know that uh and retail stores etc cetera, etc cetera, you know that hurts economic activity you know are any of us here or you know even experts in a position to say yeah that's going to look a lot different come february and so what's what i always say this is like our conversation is going to look a lot different in september of 2022 um when there may be these other variables these crisis variables that are out of the way and what we're playing for the attention of swing voters in frontline districts and, and uh, battleground states is just what we're doing for them, right? And I think we win that battle if there's not all these exterior um, um, crises going on, but no one knows whether that's gonna be the case. Well, yeah, let me start with a caveat. I'm I'm a believer that pre-year polls are massively overrated because, you know, it's like giving somebody flour, a stick of butter and an apple and asking them about your apple pie. Well, there's, you know, there's an oven, there's a campaign, things happen. So let me put a caveat. But back around July 4th, the president was still in kind of the post-election halo of about a 50. You know, I'm looking at the real clear politics average. Mm -hmm. So it's low 50s approval, which in today's polarized climate is a really good number. Right. And is unfavorable disapproval is down around 42. You know, 52 is like the new 59. Uh, in the world we have. So he was cooking. But now, and I'm curious why and what they do about it, you know, he's net negative with the disapproval around 50 and an approval in the mid to upper 40. So he's down two to, I don't know what your dad is showing. And so, but you know, he's mid single digits or a little under that underwater. Um, a lot of wear and tear on him, the foreign policy, Afghanistan stuff, the Delta comeback, which has been, you know, punishing every incumbent kind of regardless of how they're doing on it. People just get cranky. What what do you think the path forward is? I guess if the infrastructure bill can get done without a train wreck, that ought to be a tonic for them to reset and go. COVID getting a little better should be a tonic to reset and go. What, what's the thinking over there? Because they can take bad numbers for a while, but they're they're sure. gonna want to, you know, move the narrative on. What what do you right. think the tools are to get there? And how do you think we got here too? What's your take on the numbers? I I have the new Rasmussen poll here, but oh I'm god, not, stop I'm it. just deleting so, that but, one but, from the stack. But here, here's the thing is if those things are the tonic, then what's the gin, right? Or what's the your yeah, vodka? Yeah. And one of the things that we're forgetting, putting Biden's job rating aside, which we all agree has gone down. Um, and it's you know, likely to to, to go back up. But you know the 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 strong liquor here um, that setting that aside is also Trump. Let's not forget this because even though Biden's numbers are below fifty, and if fifty is your new fifty-eight, which I agree with, more like fifty-six, fifty-seven, we can't forget that that 
there is this shadow hanging over America and the Republican Party, which is Trump. And, and hear me out here, which is even though his Biden's job rating isn't at 50, when you ask questions about, you know, do you think that Joe Biden is, is, is you know, what his agenda is, is moving the country in the right direction? Or do you want to go back to the uh, um, uh, Trump uh, in, in his agenda or, or where he's moving him? Biden gets over 50 percent. And in that, in, right? So the, the bottom line is, is that there is a universe out there who have not given up on Joe Biden, who like what he's doing and where he's taken the country, especially when you put it head to head against Donald Trump. And the fact is, is that that also potentially is a, is a hang, hanging over Republicans in 2022, because people are going to understand that if Republicans go into power, it's just going to give Trump more power uh, to do what he wants to do. And so I'm not saying that Joe Biden's job ratings aren't relevant, but I do want to also say this. Donald Trump in 2020 had worse job ratings, lost a presidential election, and Republicans did really well, right, in the congressional yeah, races. Totally. So yep. the rules are being thrown out here um, in terms of what you and I all learned growing up in this business. And I'm not trying to put a spin on it. I'm just saying, the fact is, is that maybe nowadays, because those rules have changed, you don't have to, the president's numbers, Democrat or Republican doesn't have to be where they have to be because there's a whole bunch of other third, you know, three-dimensional chess being played. You can argue in 2020 that the three-dimensional chess was, yes, they liked Joe Biden. They wanted him over Trump, but they weren't completely comfortable with complete democratic control of Congress, which was kind of happened before the Georgia races. And I think that there's also three-dimensional chess that could be, be, be put in play in 22 that involves Trump and people not wanting to give Republicans power to go back to giving Trump power. And so there's a lot going on. No, look, as long as we keep betting on Trump, Biden, there's another, then Biden is not the only egg in the frying pan here. Right. He is there's right another now, message, which is, there. of course, the tragedy of the Republican Party. We have a stone cold loser as the center of our gravity. Right. I see it as a subplot because look at the races going around in the country. You are you, the Republican Party is, the you know, these primaries for Senate and governor and Congress. You're going to get Murdoch's, Aikens, Angles and O'Donnell's. Yeah. No, look, I agree. Yeah. Right. All right. Let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors. If you find yourself ordering with DoorDash more than twice a month, let's talk about getting you signed up, importantly, for DashPass, the easiest way to save money on what you're already eating. If you feel like you're paying for delivery fees more than meals, that's where DashPass from DoorDash comes in. You'll never have to worry about that again. Music subscription? Check. At-home fitness subscription? Check. Food delivery subscription? Yes, that's a thing. Time to try DashPass from DoorDash and unlock those savings you didn't know you were missing. DashPass is a membership that offers unlimited $0 delivery fees. I'm going to repeat that. Unlimited $0 delivery fees from thousands of restaurants, grocery stores, and convenience stores. With your membership, you can save an average of 4 to $5 on each order you place for delivery or pickup. That means, on average, DashPass pays for itself when you order just twice a month, and there's 18,000 restaurants that are eligible for DashPass. Flowers, pet supplies, groceries, DoorDash has so much more than just restaurants. 
Whatever you're using DoorDash for, additional savings await you with unlimited $0 delivery fees. I'm going to repeat it again, $0 delivery fees with DashPass. Try a free month of DashPass now and watch your savings add up. Start or stop your membership anytime after your free trial ends. If you're ready to save money on your DoorDash orders, DoorDash is offering a free month of DashPass right now. Stop spending money on delivery fees. Try DashPass from DoorDash today for free. When you've got zero delivery fees, you're free to get more because you can start your free month today. So, Enzo, one of the things that Murphy brought up, I mean, did you see in that sort of July, August period? I mean, I think we've there's lots of conjecture. And and look, I I think the media always takes every event and makes it like the next enormous thing. Um, But I I think a lot of public numbers have seen this. I'm sure your stuff did that, that COVID was what really has driven or drove, I guess, you know, starting in August, a bit of that wobble with the president's uh, approval rating. That's is that sort of what what you've seen? Is that what I mean, the challenge that people have? Yeah, I can't talk about my our internal numbers, but I can talk about the public numbers, which we've all seen. First of all, I think part of it is was gravity. I think we forget about that. Right. right? I mean, you know, part of it in a, is in a divided uh, con- or divided nation is gravity. Like you take a look at Joe Biden's job rating on covid. And when it started moving down because of Delta variant, those were mostly Republicans. So Joe Biden was hanging there at, you know, 52, 53 job rating, 54. And then it went, like Mike said, maybe went down to 50, whatever. The fact is, is his job rating on COVID was at 60. Well, when it started moving down, it was mostly self-identified Republicans um, moving down. Um, and that had increased, quite frankly, after the mandates, right? Um, uh, so you just kept losing Republicans on the job rating uh, for COVID. And so you've always had, again, this confluence of crises, whether it's Delta, Afghanistan, the border, and just natural gravity, I think, because there was all of, you know, as Murphy would say, there's these, you know, these big spending, you know, let's not forget, I don't know what the number is, but I got to believe that there's already been a couple hundred million dollars spent in battleground states and frontline Democratic states, et cetera, um, beating up Joe Biden. Uh, on his Build Back Better plan. And so I think that all of this goes into the pot, um, you know, for a Democrat or Republican president for their numbers to kind of get back down to earth. You know, we spent like a week on 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 France and their submarine. Uh, but again, that's not something that's not something that you see and that, that many people are going to see is that's not a, an election determining thing. It's interesting to watch. I, I love watching the media now from afar talk about something that I know is not something that quite frankly, anybody in the real world is thinking about in terms of how they align their politics. And you're talking broadly about what we've seen in the last month is the, the, the election, the electorate reverting much more to that sort of 50, 50 ish split that we're more commonly used to these days. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, that's what that's my gravity, right? Term. I mean, you know, the fact is, is that when you take a look at Trump's job rating and Biden's job rating historically through the prism of, you know, all the other modern presidents, um, 
the highest percentage they've ever seen for Trump with Republicans, the highest percentage they've ever seen for Biden with Democrats, and the lowest for Trump with Democrats, and the lowest for Biden with Republicans. And so at the end of the day, it's still it's all up to independent voters who, guess what, tend to split 50-50, you know, or, or bounce <laughs> right. in, a, in a band from, you know, you know, 50-50 from 40-60-60 to 40. And, you know, that's that's what we're dealing with in, in American politics. And it's kind of hard to see that change uh, in the near future. Right. You mentioned something I think was interesting, and I'll pick up a little bit, Murphy. We've discussed a little bit of this as, as it relates to California. You know, John, you quickly went from what I think is, is smart politically. 2022 is a referendum, uh, as Joe Biden used to tell Barack Obama, that that's not a good thing, right? It, it's a, as he used to say to, to Obama, when you're compared to the almighty, it's hard to win. When you're compared to the alternative, you you tend to do better. Do you see lessons broadly for Democrats in 2022 with what, say, Gavin Newsom? Again, I know it's a very, very different electorate, but yeah, he, he you know, clearly... it's a Harlem Globetrotter game. It was in the bag from the beginning. So if I were to Dems, I'd be careful about looking for too many lessons, you know, overwhelmingly. But what I'm suggesting days. is what I, what I, the one thing I think that Gavin Newsom did really well was by definition, a recall is a referendum. Right. And, and he he thought to himself, like, if this is a referendum on me in California, that doesn't poll well. But if I start if I start going after Larry Elder, it's, a, it's not unlike John sort of brings Trump into this. What are the lessons for Democrats on that? First of all, it, it brings up the thought I have is what I just said about Murdoch and Aiken and Sharon Angle and O'Donnell. Like all of a sudden, you, you know, you wound up getting elders who kind of became buffoonish. You were there. Uh, Mike, I mean, like he he wasn't he at the end of the day, he became part of the problem. Right. And the second thing is you have to give Gavin Newsom and his team credit because at the end of the day, they controlled the message. Right. And I actually think that that's always stating the obvious controlling the message. But in 2018, we controlled the midterm message. Right. It was about health care. And the subplot was what Trump. In 20, the Congress, because it was an, you know, open seat, you know, it was um, uh, a presidential, you know, those congressional messages kind of get tamped down. Like you get, they get lost. Yeah. Yeah. It's the second thing on the bill. The presidential is the center of the debate. Yeah. And, and the Republicans did such a great job of messaging on congressional Democrats, all the things that didn't stick to Biden. You're going to defund the police, right? You're going to open the borders. You're going to raise their taxes. You know, you're a socialist. Right. All those things. But, but they help because they were running it. There was much more of an AOC lefty Dem tilt to the congressional races than Joe Biden, who's Teflon for that stuff. But they don't buy right. it. They didn't believe yeah. it about Biden. They believe it about congressional yeah. Democrats. And so, again, I think we won the messaging war in 18 and we won the subplot, which is the political environment, you know. We lost the messaging war on the congressional side in 2020, and there, there. I think the subplot was, quite frankly, balance of power, checks and balances. So we lost that, and so 2022 is, I think, again about those things. I think we have the ability to win the messaging war if we pass these bills, and I think that we have the ability to win the subplot because I think that people really are worried about Trump getting too much power and coming back. Yeah. Well, it's tricky though. I mean, I, I agree. And I'll, I, the Gavin guys did a good job of, you know, polarizing the state, which means an automatic win for the Democrat, but his number, he got the usual Dem 60, you know, one, two, the, the point is it's going to be a struggle. 
Um, because I remember a lot of midterms. I'm, I was, I'm so damn old. I was around in 82. You know, I just started getting started that year. And you always want to move it to the kind of politically smart thing. And they're just big forces that are glued to the president. So it's a struggle. And I think that what the Dems ought to remember, uh, at least from my crazy perch outside that world, is do all the Trump stuff and Trump will help you and the dumb Republicans will help you. But that's the easy stuff. You also have to do the hard stuff, which is get that that lunch table agenda punch through of what people get when they keep you versus the risk. Because if you do the easy thing and pile up totally on Trump, it's not going to be enough. I don't I think agree. there is going to be, at least in the House, pushback on Biden. Uh, the question will be, and I think the races that get less attention but are more important are the Senate, because that is a very different battlefield than what the House is going to look like in the midterms because of redistricting and other factors where the Repubs have a have an elephant hoof on the scale. So you know, I would encourage the Dems to not take the Trump yeah, thing. For but don't granted. you also, Mike, on these on the on these U.S. Senate races, they often come down to the personality much more than the individual candidate. Right, right, and that's where the Republican primary is often the greatest gift the D's will have. Right, right. exactly. Right. Well, and you've got you know you just have exponentially greater spending. I mean, it's I remember what you know. We'll all remember when we used to be in a ten or fifteen million dollar Senate race, and now you're talking about you know. A hundred or hundred and fifty. Plus the IE has come right. It's like in. it gets to be. So, John, one one of the things that that I've harped on 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 this podcast a bit, and and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Is I, I get somewhat worried that as we get into this reconciliation fight or continue it, that that what people really hear, or or the only thing that people really hear, is. The discussion we had earlier, is it 3.5? Is it 2.5? Is it 2.8? Is it 3.1? And it all sounds like, you know, it's, it all sounds like the, the figure skating judging at the Olympics. <laughs> it doesn't sort of go through the component parts that, that we all have thought through and, and think about as, as being quite popular. What you're thinking just on that in terms of what, if you're in one of those house seats right now and you're, you're, <laughs> you're in your boat and you're being buffeted by, either calm waters uh, that help you or turbulent waters that don't. What's your advice to, to how, how to talk about this legislation in a way that makes the most sense? The Build Back Better agenda is legislation that's going to lower costs for working families, seniors, and small businesses. That is, that's how to message it because it's, it's what it does, whether it's on you know health insurance premiums, prescription drugs, elder care, um, child care, um, you know, skills training, community colleges, et cetera. It's going to lower your costs. And what we often don't see in the bubble of DC or California, New York, et cetera, is that they're the Democrats build back better or building back together that organization, spending a lot of money doing great work, uh, as well as other partners like Future Forward and American Bridge, et cetera, et cetera, in all of these frontline districts. So where there's these independent expenditures on the Republican side and the corporate side beating the hell out of frontline Democrats saying we're going they're going to raise your taxes, they're going to increase the national debt, they're going to do you know, they're going to raise your prescription drug. There is right now a counter to that saying not true. This is what this is what this plan is going to do and by the way, you're not paying for it. It's paid for those who are making over 400,000 in big corporations. So there's a lot of setting um, setting it straight about what's going on on the messaging side of it. And that should be carried back into the 2022. 
I don't know what happened to America where corporation is now the meanest thing you can say. It works. I've seen the data, but people just hate the word corporation. I've been counting. You're up to nine. It's just an acknowledgement that during the, the Bush administration, during the Trump administration, they got a lot of breaks and that this is about, you know, getting a little bit of equilibrium into the system. Because if you're sitting in a focus group with a middle class, um, you know, person, they're pissed about this and they get it that, you know, big corporations are using their tax lawyers and their lobbyists and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and their power to literally not pay any taxes. And all you have to do is in the last two or three months, take a look at all of these studies and see the, you know, the Amazons of the world not paying any taxes. And you got to say, this isn't right. And I'll give you a story from 1986. Ronald Reagan understood this. Like, you know, you read the bios in the, on, on him in the 1986 tax reform bill, when I was working for Citizens for Tax Justice with David Wilhelm and Bob McIntyre, and we would put out those reports on the big companies that didn't pay federal taxes. And Reagan thought it was wrong. And he got together with Tip O'Neill and Rostenkowski and Packwood, and they set it straight. They equalized it. And so, you know, that, that type of um, bipartisanship on fairness should not be extinct anymore, but it is. Well, I'm worried about what they're going to do to small corporations like mine. But right, and small businesses are are not going to be impacted. Okay, we 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 will have a big debate on Build Back Better or Big Bad Budget Buster. You know, <laughs> and it's going to be a fascinating midterm. I mean, Mike, it's the the thing is, is that it's paid for, and people like that it's paid for and not going to increase the debt, and they like who's going to have to pay a little bit more to take a little bit more responsibility of paying their fair share. Let, let me ask an exit question here, um, uh, a, a slightly different version of your, again, you, you're, the, you're the president's pollster, and I'm not gonna ask you to get into your own numbers, but you know, you, you, you gotta, I'm making part of this up, but you're delivering it in some interval, essentially the, the, the current report card of the political environment as a, and I'm, again, this isn't, this have to be, I'm not asking you to go through your numbers, but as you look at the landscape over the next sort of 13 or so months, what keeps you up at night? One, I'm part of a polling team, but the, the second is, is that it's not as if this president is sitting there making decisions off the polls. I mean, that I think is really important. He didn't, he didn't, uh, during the campaign, we didn't even do a poll before he announced, he knew why he wanted to run for president. And I think that that is kind of extraordinary as well. What keeps you up at night is what Axelrod always told me about the presidency and be in his experience and probably your experience, which is it's the things that you can't control. <clears throat> it's, it's the things that come at right. you from the outside that you can't see today. And I think that that whether you're a Republican or Democratic president, that's probably the same. And so, you know, there's been a lot going on, whether it's Delta or Afghanistan or now the border and uh, the Haitians, rising prices, et cetera. And, and so, you know, what is, what is that grouping in 2022? We don't know. That's what keeps you up. Yeah. It's oh, the boogeyman sense. under the bed. And we will keep up too with them. Let's go to the music. It's listener mailbag. <laughs> I love it. All right. We like classic jingles here. <laughs> Okay, if you have a question, send it to hacksontamp at gmail.com, hacksontamp at gmail.com. And Robert, if you want to follow and subscribe to an amazing free newsletter 
to keep you informed on everything political as well as interesting tidbits and uh, malarkey, as the president would like to say. That's his official review of the newsletter. What do you do and what's it called? Go to our newsletter, hacksontap.bulletin.com. Sign up, as Murphy said, for free uh, twice a week. Uh, you get uh, a little bit of our insights in addition to uh, hearing this podcast weekly. Uh, but we dive into uh, much of the machinations of, of, of what's going on on Capitol Hill and the political environment, both in Washington and throughout the country. It's free, hacksontap.bulletin.com. We have a lot of fun doing it. A lot of filthy jokes from Robert Z. Gibbs, too. All right, <laughs> question one. All right, Murphy, uh, this one comes from John. It's, he says, it seems like a foregone conclusion that Adam Kinzinger is toast in redistricting. Is the assumption that he would lose a primary in any Republican district they draw for him? Or is it just geographically impossible to come up with a way of keeping him as the surviving R when maximizing the Democratic advantage? That is a great question. Uh, first of all, almost anything is possible in redistricting. I used to live in a district in California that was only contiguous at low tide. Uh, that said, the Justice Department can't have an opinion. If the Democrats who run Illinois really got up every day thinking we need to save Adam Kinzinger and put him in a district where he could at least fight out a good primary, they could do it. And my argument would be they ought to. He's been a patriot on the Democratic side. But generally, uh, if you're looking for a group that never even cried when Bambi died, you will find it in the Democratic caucus in Illinois. I think if it that district is the meatball they'd like to eat, that the district, the state has to lose a seat. And the the early word is they're they're going to try to wipe out Kinsinger, which I think is kind of a tragedy. There are other hours they could go after, but that's politics. All right, Gibbs, here's a great one for you. Ed wants to know, what's it like flying on Air Force One? Can you talk about your first experience on the plane, including those little bottles of vodka, Robert, and what was going through your head at the time? Air Force One, Air Force One, let me just say, I've been on a lot of planes, unfortunately. Air Force One, easily the coolest plane you're you're ever going to be on. Uh, it is It is spacious. Uh, there's a, you walk up the stairs, there's a sort of conference room and a, and a, and a, a couple of beds for the, the, the president. Uh, there's, um, a smaller senior staff cabin. There's a big sort of conference room seats behind that for both staff, the secret service and press. So it's a great plane. You can do everything you need to on it. Um, the, 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 I think the biggest challenge that I always had on air force one is you want to, <laughs> you'd love to get on that plane and kind of relax. Um, that plane has, as you can imagine, just about everything you need to have on it. So they're always handing you updates. They're always handing you things to read. Uh, hey, here's the latest, your latest intelligence briefing. Here's this, here's that. Again, the press is on that plane. And as press secretary, you're going to have to go back and, and, and brief them with some regularity. So it's a, it is a wonderful thing. I'll tell one other quick story. I took my son on it once. We had to work on a Saturday and we convinced, uh, um, there weren't many of us traveling with the president. This is during 2009. So a few of us brought our children on, uh, on a Saturday. And th of course, you know, Ethan walks on a uh, cute little kid. And the first thing that the air force pilots come down and say, Hey, would you like to be in the cockpit when we land? Would you like to see that? Would you like to sit up there with the pilots? And I'm looking at these guys like, I've been on this plane like 50 times. Nobody's ever asked me if I wanted to sit in the cockpit and watch the plane land. But of course, and I loved it. I still have some pictures of it. They put the headphones on Ethan. They let him call out the runway number. 
uh, it was like he was landing this plane. So it was, it was a lot of fun. It's a, it's an, it's an, it's a great piece of equipment. Uh, it, it's fun to be on. Yeah. So this is a question for you, John. It comes from Abdul. Why is the assumption, this is a great polling question. Why is the assumption that quote college educated end quote means leans Democrat and why so much emphasis on education rather than quote unquote values? Yeah. Well, I think first of all, it is a great question because like kind of all subgroups, right? Um, they move around. And college educated voters, if you go back to when Barack Obama was reelected, he won college educated voters. I want to, or I'm sorry, Romney won college educated voters with 51% of the vote, right? So he got 49. And then you go to 2016 and Hillary won them. So Romney, the Republican presidential won it. And then, and then uh, because of the dynamics with Trump, Hillary won it, I think by four points, she was at 49, 45. And then you go to 2020 and uh, Biden wins them by 55%. But congressional Dems weren't winning by 55%, but they were, I, I don't know the exact number. In 2018, we took the house over because of who? A lot of college educated women, suburban women, uh, moving from how they were voting, for example, in 14, when Republicans at the congressional level kept it, and the same with 10. And so they've moved around. There was clearly a reaction in 2018 um, disproportionately with college-educated women, um, but we've seen an evolution. And guess what? That doesn't mean that with the right Republican candidate, it won't move back um, because there was a depression uh, in the numbers from 2018 to 2020 on the congressional level, even though Biden expanded it uh, on the presidential level. Yeah, great point that these things move around. And, you know, it is uh, even as much as our politics is locked in, there's there's still, you know, there there are still candidate differences. To your point, Joe Biden's ability to talk to people differently than than your sort of normal Democrat uh, was a big deal in uh, in 2020 and, and will be moving forward. Uh, Anzo, thanks again. Enjoy doing this. Anzo, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Thank President Biden for listening every week. You're going to get a good uh, view. I think our listeners learned a lot. And Gibbs, always great to see you. We'll be back next time. Murphy, good to see you. And Anzo, I'm going to say this. Roll Tide. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> thanks. Appreciate it. on Broadway, ladies and gentlemen, 14 months near Schubert Alley, near Saudis, and tonight to be appearing near Olympic and Marino <laughs> on a Saturday during the height of the off-season. This, this is the end of a career you're watching here, ladies and gentlemen. Please, on your way home, leave a stone on top of my car. This is really wonderful to see all you people here. This late too, this is not bad either.
But it's exciting. I mean, exciting. I get some exciting news today. I start rehearsals for a brand new Broadway show called The Prostate Monologues. It'll be the only show with four intermissions. 